0: And I was just curious, I wanted to throw that back to you. If if you were me and I had I'm in a million dollars, I'm in an affordable single family market right now with the current trends, what would you do? So I'll give the real estate and the non-real estate answer. Welcome to the Real Estate Mogul MD Podcast. So thanks for tuning in and taking control of your financial future. This is a show where we not only motivate and inspire, we give you actionable, real-world experience to help you live life by design. You'll hear journeys and stories from other physicians, investors, coaches, consultants, and entrepreneurs. And now, here's your host, Brett Riggins. How many no's have you received? Did you get a no when you were applying for med school? Have you ever known somebody that's, that's gotten a no from a bank? Maybe gone through foreclosure or bankruptcy? And I tell you what, to get through those times in our lives, it requires faith. It requires persistence, passion, just to keep going. And today's guest has got all of that has gone from every single no you can imagine to now being somewhere where, where he's actually just recently, uh, partially retired from practice of medicine. He's now a fund manager and founder at Balouche Capital. It's a multi-asset platform offering co-investment opportunities for physicians and other accredited investors. He educates investors via best-selling books, Forbes articles and summits. And now today on this podcast, please welcome Dr. Amir Belush to the show all right mr amir here we are the time has come i tell you what i've been looking forward to this our paths crossed um it was probably a couple months ago i think um and we were talking about physician well systems and you threw me some great questions and you threw me some information about your past and i said amir we got to get you on the show man and the time has come welcome to the show i'm excited hey thanks for having me man I think we'll have a good conversation Absolutely. So just to let everybody in on, on some of the background, I always like asking everybody about their, their medical journey to hear because you are an MD, you are a physician. And, um, you know, I, I guess at this point, almost more importantly, you're, you're an experienced investor and I, w- I wanted to dive into that as well, too. But tell us a little bit about, uh, your experience in medicine leading up to this point, Amir. Well, it was kind
1: of bumpy actually. So it was back in, in 2000 when I put in my application, which is a painful process in itself. But as I applied, I, you know, I got a couple of rejection letters and one school is left. And I thought, oh, that must be the one I'm going to be accepted at UT Houston. And then I got their rejection letter late. And I'm like, wow, I might not be a doctor. Yeah. <laughs> so I was kind of freaking out. I started studying for the MCAT and I was thinking, you know, let me let me start my own business. So I read, I heard something on the radio. I started some electronic payment thing from my apartment and then basically lost my life savings in that, which luckily wasn't that much at the age of 21. Now, then I was like, okay, let me go work with my dad or just live with him. Basically, my family back in Midland, Texas. And then he went bankrupt about a month or two later. So now we're living in a one bedroom apartment. I'm staring at the ceiling, wondering what's going on in life. Wow. Uh, while I was thinking about that, I was thinking, you know, you really can't trust any one path in life, one source of income, one career, one anything. And so I started to overlearn on financial stuff, personal finance, investing, leadership, business. And eventually I did become a doctor about two years later. I got into Texas Tech Med School. Miami for anesthesia. Now I'm in Dallas, Texas, where I pretty much knew I was going to end up. So doing anesthesia, but I never forgot what I learned when I was 21 reading these books. And that's that the first million dollars that people usually make is in real estate. It's responsible for a majority of people's millionaire status. So since then, I started learning a lot about uh, real estate and investing in general As soon as I hit the ground in Dallas, got my real estate license, my securities license, started working with a broker dealer, and we're flipping all kinds of real estate. I think we did about six hundred million in in about four years. Wow! Wow. Transactions, and still continue to be a doctor. Although I didn't tell you this before, but last month I basically have retired. I'm probably just work like two three days a month, and maybe do some locums here there and some mission trips. But uh, it definitely was a long journey. It didn't start out very smooth at all. So, you know, I guess word to the wise, just hang it in there. If you want something bad enough, just hang in there and you can get it as long as you
0: work hard. Yeah. Faith, a man. Faith is the foundation that carries you through right. so many things. So many things. Even when that, like you felt that last thing, that last... That last rejection letter was, it still takes faith to carry through that, huh?
1: That was tough. I, I was in denial. I was. Th- I called him and said, look, you you, it. you mistook me
0: for somebody else. There, there's no way I didn't get in. There's no yeah. way. I, didn't. I thought was. I was too in, but. Wow, wow. Hey, and Amir, what was, you know, uh, when you're 21, uh, it was an interesting quote, kind of like, you know, staring at the ceiling, wondering, you know, wondering what life is at that point. What were some of those books that you picked up then that kind of started that direction?
1: Uh, well a couple books. That, so there was a it's so I was in San Antonio at the time, and there was a place down the street called Earful of Books, and you could just get all these books on audio. And I would just they didn't have a big selection. I listened to a lot of things. So a lot of it was Tony Robbins on Mindset. And Rich Dad Poor Portad actually came out around that time. So so that book's been out for more than two decades. I read that one. <clears throat> and then I was also part of Business Network International and the uh San Antonio Chambers of Commerce, and they were giving me recommendations, so I read some other books like Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People and a lot of Brian Tracy material and I actually saw him live, so he was basically like what Tony Robbins is now, but he would sell out you know arenas there and back in the year two thousand and one. He had a lot of things on leadership and, and marketing and personal finance. So that,
0: that's how I got started. I, I don't know if you see me. I had a smile on my face as you were reading off that list of books. Man, just dropping the bombs in on that piece. And I think starting off in mindset was huge, was huge to, to take that twist. And even, uh, Tracy, you know, the, even before I, I guess, um, Rich Dad, Poor Dad is definitely a mindset shift, the asset versus liability and, and getting pulled away from kind of what the masses are taught kind of thing. But right? just that leadership piece, Robbins, Tracy, I mean, massive, massive pieces. So if there's anybody out there listening, if you were to pick somewhere to start, follow Amir and start in that path. That's, that's crazy, but life just doesn't come up and change for you because you read these books and you went to these seminars, right? So we're stumbling through. You get, you get into medicine and you just told us, uh, congratulations for at this point in your, your career, Amir, that you're somewhere it feels like it's good, but. Even along the way, it's not all sunshine and rainbows. Even after you read those books, unicorns aren't flying around and the answers are solved. It takes faith. It takes dedication, persistence, all of these things to grow in. And just that understanding that this is the way. And it's so hard to find that path when we, there's nobody that's like pointing us the way. Like, come here, Amir, do this. And you're going to get this in 10 years, in 15 years. Right. So it's just, it's a challenge, but it's a great start. So we're now back to medicine. Where does real estate come back in? Tell us about your first, your first real estate deal. Well, you know, you told us you started, um, you started a brokerage, right? And then a securities, you got your license in securities. What's that combination? Well, you know, being a
1: lifetime student, I couldn't get. An MD in real estate, but the closest thing I get, I figure it was a real estate license. I didn't think too much about it. And I got my securities license also really because I just wanted to learn from the best. and, And I thought in some structured environment until I learned it's not that structured, but I learned a lot on the real estate syndication side from the broker dealer. But you're asking, what was my first real estate experience? So when I was 21, I was like, well, let me buy some foreclosures. And back then you actually had to go to the uh the courthouse steps and they give you a piece of paper once a month. I think it was like the first Tuesday of the month. And it gives you a list of people's names and addresses, sometimes a phone number, sometimes not. And you just start knocking on doors and making an offers. So I did that and I had a verbal partnership. Of course, I don't have money for an attorney or anything, but I had a verbal partnership with another guy to fund it if we could buy a foreclosure and fix it up. And that never panned out. Then I tried buying a rental property when I was in medical school. I was like, let me get this duplex. And it wasn't that expensive, about 120 grand. So I figured my payments around seven, 800 a month. And I had a guy that would rent out the master for 800. So I'm basically living for free right I ended up selling to one of his friends instead but I did get approved and and I put in my offer and so that didn't work and then there were some other bank repos that I found online and I put in offers and got outbid so eventually I did do a transaction while I was still a resident I was second year resident in Miami and I was I teamed up with uh people in Dallas that needed somebody to co-sign on a loan on a short sale that they were buying and they had a team. So now I'm partnered with teams and mentors and we did flip that condo and I made about 17 grand out of that in the middle of residency, which anybody that's listening, have been to residency, you know, even a thousand dollars means a lot (laughs) perspective, (laughs) man. Yeah. I pretty pretty much paid down a lot of credit cards with that 17 grand. I was very happy for that one. And then, then it was like, okay, let me go to Dallas and do something bigger Oh another failed transaction my last year of residency we were putting together a commercial development deal a gas station and c-store off of i30 in Cockrell Hills basically the first like it would be the first exit on the way to Cowboys Stadium and they didn't have a gas station so it seemed like a killer deal i should have made 800 grand in the deal my co-signer backed out the day the day of closing so we close on the land only And with the money that we raised and then we sold the land, 40 grand net profit means nothing. It's basically a break even. So there's a lot of stumbling blocks that, you know, I know a lot of people don't talk about the stumbling blocks, but you learn more during those than you do from the wins. And so that's a whole other podcast in itself. That's when I was like, let me just get into some transactional stuff. You know, I signed a contract for to help somebody buy a rental property or uh, or their dream home. Hey, there's not that much risk that it's not going to close, right? Right. Like it's not, not as much headache. So that's why I got the licenses. And then the best thing really was that securities license to me was just as powerful as my MD license. Understanding securities and mainly due diligence. Like this due diligence is crazy. So when you're when you're working with a broker dealer, you're not going to be raising money for somebody that isn't you know as clean as a whistle with an amazing track record. And it costs a lot to put these things together, and so that was a great learning experience for me over four years. And that's the reason why you know
0: I ended up being able to leave and create Belouge Capital. Wow! 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 Man, what a journey! What a journey, man! So many and so many no's to get to that yes. You know, there's so many no's, and on the you know, on the sales. So we had a, um, I had a direct to seller. Um, a real estate acquisition company myself, single family. So we were direct to seller. All those instances uh, of you writing offers to me, it makes me happy because you were writing them low enough, which means you were writing offers that made sense, right? Because it takes so many no's to get to that. Yes. But just like I tell the sales floor is that, well, it's, I didn't make this up. I'm not going to steal this from somebody. That no is one step closer to a yes, right? right. Right. And that's it takes so much, but it's so difficult in the real world because it's emotional. I you get a tie to these offers, you get tied to the time that you put into these things. And it just also tell everybody to watch out, because when you're tied to that emotionally, you start trying to make a deal and not find a deal. Right. That's exactly right. And actually, even right now, I see,
1: you know, people that I'm not going to name any names, go to certain masterminds. And they have the money and they're determined to just close on something. And they forget the goal is actually to make money, not just close on something Mm -hmm. and bid whatever it is to get that deal. And that actually ruined the market for a lot of people the last couple of years. So that's why I actually kind of stepped out from the multifamily back in 2019, because I felt too much of that was happening. But also what you said about just getting all those no's, that's why it's actually So important to be around people like yourself that talk about this and just let people know, look, you're not alone. It's okay to get a bunch of no's and hit a couple walls along your way to success. Like that's just normal for me. I didn't, there were no masterminds in 2000, 2001. I would just listen to audio from Brian Tracy and he would say, yeah, you know, for every, every time you get a no, you're closer to a yes. Every 10. Set your KPIs every ten nos, get a maybe, and that might be good. And just you know, set your expectations accordingly. So, but now with with podcasts and masterminds and uh, online groups, you can actually talk to other people about it. You don't feel as bad. So, mm-hmm. so all this community stuff and this podcasting
0: really helps with that mindset. Yeah. Yeah. And learning, building that foundation to learn, but then taking action. Just another caution out there too, Amir. And just like you're saying, there was a somebody out, uh, you know, doing these lectures, a guru or whatever. Um, and kind of misleading. So we always tell everybody too, that just because you're in a mastermind with somebody or somebody's leading a mastermind or what you're seeing on social media is not what you need to see totally for most people, right? Because you're being sold that image. You're being sold. There are plenty of people out there that have amazing integrity, just amazing experience. I uh, will lead you in the right direction. But even in those times, a lot of the the stuff you're going to see out front is once you what they want to show you. Right, right. Sunshine and rainbows. That is a 100 true. I
1: <laughs> thought it'd be great to do like an episode just on the headaches. There's so many nuggets of information and learning from there. I'll say if anybody's into those masterminds, ask them about some of their their worst deals that they did Mm -hmm. and reverse engineer ways to avoid that. Yeah. Being an investor, I tell people is more about understanding risk. So after a while, people understand cap rates, ROI, all of that annualized return, you can get all that with a calculator. That's when everything goes right. But how do you plug holes into what goes wrong? You need to talk to people that have a lot of experience. And once they tell you what went wrong, you need to go back and think, okay, well, how could that have been avoided? Because the, the more you could avoid these pitfalls, the more you could compound your wealth. And that's, that's a big name of the game, right? Because rule number one, Warren Buffett says, don't lose money. Rule number two, see rule
0: number one. <laughs> I love that. Uncle Uncle Warren, man, we were when we were um doing the single family thing fix and flip style, and I uh, you know, once we started, I guess, not not necessarily transactional, but wholesaling um houses, it was so much easier. It took less people per se, but When, when we, we stopped flipping two by fours and started flipping paper, things changed. Um, but in that idea, uh, man, I, I had, you know, I was starting to film a lot more and do trying to share this experience. One time we were doing six, which is not the the biggest in the world. You know, it's relative. It's a, that's a lot stressful. Uh Um, and during that six, man, there were so many things that went wrong, so many no's, so many mistakes, so much just, Oh, stress. And we were thinking, okay, we well, want to show this to everybody because it's not, it's not perfect every way through. Everybody wants to pull the the shiny stuff out of it and say, wow, you made 60 grand on this flip. And you know, at that point, it's like, okay, yeah, but look what it took to get there. I mean, when you buy a house for ten thousand dollars and you gotta you know pursued up to get into it. And, you know, it's you're fighting off uh, it getting demolished by the Miss Pally. Like there's so much stress that goes into it. And everybody from the outside and social media and watching life through a TV show sees just, wow, 60 grand. I should do that. Right, right. No, that's true. I mean, but remember,
1: they're trying to sell you like a mastermind. So they don't want to scare you. And then you don't get into their mastermind. So you kind of got to be careful, like. When it, when it looks too good, it it probably is like, you definitely want to see, see how they're overcoming obstacles. And if you're just getting into it, it makes sense to partner with somebody that's been there, done
0: that because they've seen those headaches that you might not have seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. What happens when, like in the, I love asking this question now, I'm, I'm not yet into multifamily Um but I love asking the question, okay, what happens now when these, when the bridge loan is, you know, the gap loan is expired and the insurance has rose, what, 40% when the taxes have risen? What happens? How do you address that? What's the, what's the protocol? Right. And same way in, in single family, um, you know, what happens when interest rates change during your, uh, renovation. The renovation takes too long. You can't get your projected rent. So what what happens during these times? What happens when somebody breaks in and steals something when you're renovating a house? Right. 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 Just great questions, man. And yeah. you, you have not left real estate. You're still doing real estate deals now. So tell us a little bit about, Amir, where you're at now with real estate. Well, so in 2011, we started off just doing fix and flips on some
1: single family rentals. And then we're figuring, hey, every time we go to the city to get approvals, it takes just as much time to get approval for one house as it would for maybe a whole subdivision. And so we mm-hmm. wanted to scale. So the natural progression is to become single family home developer. So now we uh, develop, we d- develop basically multiple subdivisions around Dallas and some of the suburbs of Dallas. That's our main real estate focus. It doesn't mean I won't jump back into some commercial here or there, but. Mm-hmm. I really like what you could do with single family and the fact that the valuations are not tied to the NOI for me is actually an advantage. So, you know, I really, I really like that aspect of it, especially when, you know, 2015 to 2019, that's when we saw cap rates and interest rates at their lowest, which is a seller's market. So for me, it was not a good time to go into. Buying properties in a seller's market. So I sold everything. But multifamily, when you buy, it's so complex. Uh, I tell people, you know, my physician friends, this is like the neurosurgery of real estate. There's so many things that have to be orchestrated and it's so complex and it takes a lot of good relationships with the city and planning and things like that. But, you know, the fact that it's so difficult to execute, there's not as much competition. And you're usually buying. Land from people that have no idea what the numbers are at the end of the day. So I think it's actually easier to negotiate. And even though it's harder to execute, meaning it takes more time and and more skill and more coordination, it's safer because you could come in with some discounts almost whenever you want. Like all of our deals are off market. People are willing to sell their land. People buy land to land bank, and they don't know how to develop. So, if you're not a developer, you don't know what your land is really worth. It's not really based off of comps, which is a whole other conversation. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, most people like like with the uh, the developments you do, I'm sure a lot of people talk about the Burr method. You have mm-hmm. some value add, cosmetic value add in multi-family. The value add is maybe renovating the units, increasing the rent, increase NOI, flip it at a higher in a Y multiple. <clears throat> so in single family, you could take raw land and the value add is just get it permitted correctly. That's not the value of the land sometimes can double off of that. And you're leveraged into something that could double in six months. So you could actually make like a couple hundred percent in a year or and, or you could keep and sell it or you keep that and then develop the lots. And now the value goes up again. And now you could sell it to the builders, or you keep it and you build the vertical because the vertical is the next value add. And then as you're selling, you could upsell on certain appliances and upgrades, which usually those have 50 to 80 percent margins, which is kind of the final value add. So there's like a four to five step value add, and you can get out in multiple areas. You know, in that development. So that's why I like it. There's multiple times you get in and out and you can always step back and see what the market is
0: doing and, and make a move. When you say build a vertical at that point, you're talking about actually sticks and stones at that point. Right. Actually putting the house up. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I see the smile on your face as you're telling me this. too. <laughs> Most, <laughs> people they... don't know this.
1: Most people don't know this. I've never yeah. really heard somebody explain single family development
0: on on a podcast or youtube so the so the risk some of the risk tied in with those too um so i've not done uh, a new construction development um i almost did the day before we were going to break ground we sold the property oh like the day great. before man and it was just one of those things it was um i was brand new at everything and i had so many other things going on but but ultimately um uh, one thing i did pick up through that process was Sometimes, depending on the size of the development, you become your own competition. So when you like depending on how many houses you have, how many phases you have, you become your own competition. By all of a sudden, you're comping against properties you've already sold and have been sold again. Right, right. So it's just kind of like the diamond industry. There's plenty of
1: diamonds in the world. But why is a diamond worth something? Because the people that control the diamonds only only put out a certain amount in the market right so the same with developing we might put out just one or two homes at a time let it sell one or two homes at a time let it sell and that way the supply demand is in our favor because we're controlling the supply and we go in there knowing what the demand is because we can look at the absorption rate in the area and also we we mainly stick in the affordable home area we we like people to get f h a loans that's the biggest market, so the biggest market means the most amount of demand for our homes so that's how we that's our model in this relatively safe model in the world of development. And I know other people they will build luxury homes which have some amazing margins, you know, but we do less margin and more volume and we still get you know project
0: irrs like in the 50s oh wow wow that's crazy um when when you're controlling the number that that are are being put out it's almost like you're you're not doing yeah like you're saying you're not doing 100 200 300 500 house developments right, right. do you use um firms to do you you spoke of absorption basically, and I guess from my perspective that's um how fast a house goes up for sale and gets sold is that correct right
1: right like how how many houses are being bought in that area over what period of time and do you use uh analyst uh groups to do these studies for you uh, we have in the past, but usually just my brother who's full time with us on
0: baluch brothers development he just looks it up on the m l s Okay. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So um, inventory, stuff like that. And you mentioned your brother, and you've got somewhat of a family business going on there, huh, Amir? Right, right. So he used to,
1: you know, believe it or not, he was just a pizza delivery guy for Papa John's, mm-hmm. which is excellent pizza, by the way. <laughs> <able> to... <laughs> yeah, I agree. I agree, so man. He did. While he was delivering pizzas, he got his business finance degree, and uh, I was paying for him to get his MBA at UT, And halfway through, I said, look, I don't think you need this. I think it's time you need to come over here and write your own checks and start growing Belush Brothers Development. Because I can only get it so far while I'm still in the OR all the time. Mm -hmm. I need somebody on site managing our subcontractors. And so that's when we started to really scale up our flips and get even better rentals. And then at that point, I just started managing the capital stack.
0: And he was the boots on the ground. What was the hardest part about working with your brother?
1: You know we're always going to butt heads on things. He wants to do this, I want to do that. I'm type A personality, he's type B. I want everything done yesterday. So yeah. but uh you know it's it's actually been been pretty good. So at the end of the day it's uh, I'm still writing the check, so I still have some uh, most of the control of it, but he's actually better he with his eye to know how to value engineer these houses mm-hmm. and much clueless at that point. So he creates the value that way. So, and he's, he's good at those numbers too. His business finance background helps with that. And so now like if I put together a pro forma, he'd go in there and make it have a little bit more detail in it. So we have a custom basically a custom acquisition
0: pro forma that we use when we do land acquisition. Mm-hmm. See you know, younger or older. A few years younger, younger. Interesting. Interesting. I'm I'm asking America because I've worked with both of my families, I are both of my brothers, older and younger. Uh, and just that journey of, uh, you know, writing the checks, uh, you know, different type personalities. And just so yeah. it's always interesting for me to see that, um, you know, see how that works for everybody else, too. Well, speaking of, of
1: personalities, so now that in some other masterminds that I have on that are Specifically for developers and some just for uh, business owners. Whenever you bring somebody on, it's good to work to people's strengths, right? You don't want to put somebody in a position where their job is their weak link. So now everybody on our team does the disc personality test. And mm-hmm. another one starts for K- with K that I always forget. I always have to search it in my email. <laughs> to let you know hey, are, are you introverted? Or are you extroverted? Like if somebody's not a little bit extroverted and they're going out here managing contractors, I don't know if that's the best thing, but let me tell you, if somebody's introverted and they want to be our bookkeeper or, or manage the financial, that's great. Right. There's mm-hmm. on a computer and get stuff done. And also we'll show you how to communicate with people on your team. So like for me, if somebody wants to talk to me, just, I'm just like, just get right to the point, cut out the BS. Don't tell me stories. Just get straight to the numbers. That's yeah. how I. I don't like it too. But then people have
0: feelings. People right. have feelings and we got to, we got to stop and talk about <laughs> feelings and, and all this other stuff. And it's just, for me, it's, I've just been, I've been learning Amir when it comes to managing people. Perfect. And I had, um, uh, a teammate work with me, uh, within the last couple of years here, and he had managed lots and lots of people. This was C-suite retired, um, Awesome guy. Just great guy was just giving me as much knowledge as possible. One of the things, I guess the most uh valuable thing I feel like I took out of the mentorship as he worked with us on our team was, uh, you know, that I had some guys on the team that were 35, 40, you know, 45 years old. And he told me, he's like, Brett, these guys, they're grown men. They're not going to change. They are who they are. So you basically have to find that path or that journey for them that fits with who they are. Because as soon as you try to start changing that person, you're not getting anywhere. You're going to be battling. It's just to be a constant, constant wheel of coming back to the same thing. So you, you shake your head like you agree on that one, huh? No, we did. Cause you know,
1: I had, we had those problems, uh, with, with some of my other companies and, some of my executive assistants, like we had to terminate some of them, just wasn't a good fit. But now most people on my team are somewhat like me. My top guys are all the, all the uh, COOs are. And then now if we need somebody extroverted, we definitely put everybody through these personality tests first and that avoids a lot of friction. So there have been times we hired like the wrong people, the wrong construction managers forcing them into a role that didn't fit their personality. So, you know, everybody can excel in their own way and that personality test, it is an extra step, but I think it's totally worth it if you're
0: trying to build a team. Mm -hmm. And the biggest um, way, I guess, to scale is just that my, I mean, you've got to have the right people. You got to have the right people. You got to give them the right resources. You know, and those are the things it's like if you hire the wrong person, keeping the wrong person for too long is a whole nother. I mean, there's a whole nother podcast we're getting into here and a whole nother topic of of the people thing. But it means so much to have the right people on your team. You know, absolutely. You now, you asked me the first time that we had a conversation um what I would do with a million dollars. And I've been thinking about this in my my lane currently is single families and we have. Um, you know, plugged into this little lane where we can acquire, uh, I guess not, not necessarily aggressively, but consistently, uh, getting through data, the w- way that we're plugged into the data, filtering data and making offers, those kind of things. And I was just curious. I wanted to throw that back to you. If, if you were me and I had a million dollars, I'm in a, I'm in an affordable single family market right now with the current trends. What would you do? <laughs> So I'll give the real
1: estate and the non-real estate answer. So I'll do the non-real estate first. On the non-real estate, I would buy existing businesses that are selling for a 2 to 3X. and Basically, the the X, like the multiple that you buy on the EBITDA or the net income, it's basically like the inverse of cap rate. So a 3X would be a 33 cap rate. So people know what cap rate are. That's your... Your return on your investment if you bought something all cash with no leverage. So most multifamily right now is at a five cap. You bought all the cash. That's 5% return and uh, nothing really to brag about, but you could buy a business at a 33 cap. So, and I did do that. Uh, I bought a med spa and grew it to 8,000 patients and flipped it. So that was fun. So, but that was like a lot of cash flow from day one. You get so much cash flow. And once you get cash flow now you could leverage more into the real estate right cuz when they when they underwrite you they won't always underwrite the project but when they underwrite you they want to see that you personally that are guaranteeing the loan can cover this debt service coverage ratio at least 1.25 right so when you do the single family, maybe your your whatever your regular job is, so if they're doctor listening, maybe it's their internal medicine income, their cardiology income, whatever it is, you got some excess income. Okay, that's going to cover the debt service covered ratio on your first, second, and maybe third rental. But at some point, if those things are not cash flowing enough, you're going to be capped. And so I think thinking cash flow first. Uh, is a better way to think like if i go back in time i might have done that but i did start off with a fourplex as my first property and and doing some some quick in and out cosmetic flips but that's what i would do now I'd go for cash flow first which buys you the ability to leverage and then leverage is the supercharger
0: leverage is the nitrous oxide uh even even when we were, uh, you know, back early on doing the fix and flip stuff. And I, uh, you know, I always hear this a lot. I, I'm thinking about getting into real estate, but I don't have the time. I'm thinking about getting real estate, but I don't have the money. You do. You have just as much time and really access to money as a lot of other people. But other people's money, the old OPM um, acronym is is what was the the racing fuel for our engine. Right, right. And also, you got to, and just like the nitrous, you got to be careful
1: because, you know, you could get burned, too. So, for example, if people are over leveraged, you definitely want to stress test your deal. Like, what if you have six month vacancy? Do you have the cash sitting around to float that thing? you don't want to get stuck? You don't want to be forced to liquidate. So it's especially true in development because land really doesn't cash flow. So whatever the note is, I need to have three years, four years of interest reserves sitting in my bank account, cash and you got to factor that into the pro forma. Yeah. And so you just have to, you just have to do that. But the more cash flow you have, the less you have to worry about having excess cash for emergencies, right? Because you got cash flow from multiple sources.
0: Yeah. So right now, um, it's interesting and I'd watched a little thing on, on your Instagram. Um, which is for everybody out there. It is amirbaluch.md, right? A-M-I-R-B-A-L-U-C-H.m-D. Uh, tons of cool stuff on there, but I was briefly looking at that and, um, I saw a lot of stuff about negative cash flow, cash flow. And it's interesting. You're talking about cash flow now. And it makes me think, Amir, of, um, you know, if I'm building a portfolio of, uh, in the burst strategy, What what about I could because I can grab, you know, lower quality properties that are already cash flowing, already rented up and hold them in cash. If I have that capital, hold them in cash, I'm instantly cash flowing and have the potential to do the renovation and refinance later. That may be like a good foundation to put a few of these into a portfolio. Right. Right. You could do that. In fact, I know uh, one of our friends,
1: he does everything cash. He partners with seven figure check writer and they flip luxury homes, but they do it all cash. So it's, it's lower risk, but big, you know, chunks of money. If you're flipping, you know, seven figure houses, right. And that's their model. And right now, when interest rates are so high, I mean, imagine you just buy something cash, you're saving seven, eight percent a year. I mean, some people are pretty happy with seven, eight percent a year. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You no, know, uh, that's not a bad thing to be buying cash now. And then if interest rates go down, you can always refinance and get a, get money back. And that's a non taxable event. So mm-hmm. you know, it's just a financial restructuring. Now you have that tax free cash out of the house and you can leverage into another deal by putting a down payment on another deal. So going in cash first is not a bad way to look at it. I don't think a lot of people will do it unless they have a lot of cash thing around, but. Right. Is not a bad way to do it in a high interest environment. So yeah. it gives you the ability to come in and out and, you know, control your, you can really control your finances depending on how much you refinance out of there. You can manage, you know, hey, do you want more cash flow? Then, then, you know, keep, keep more cash. If you want a little bit less cash flow, but you want to grow your net worth more and expand your portfolio, you're going to leverage more and refinance more
0: of that money out. Mm-hmm the f- famous quote from my father-in-law who was one of my very first uh business mentors he had uh he I, he made millions uh, making with pennies i guess the best way to put it because he was a grocery owner grocery store owner and you know went from the bagger up to owning a few stores and um man when at first when i first started watching you know i fill out your personal financial statement that first time i mean that's a that's a That's a something to celebrate in itself because then you're tracking. If you're not measuring it, then you can't, you can't increase it, right? You don't know if you're getting better or not. So that PFS, that personal financial statement, you mentioned net worth was a way to track that net worth. And I watch this thing. I grow it. I get more real estate. I grow it. Man, I'm excited. I'm smiling. I say, listen here, father in law. And he said, he said, well, buy me something with that net worth. Gone. I had nothing. I could do nothing, right? It's just, I was so cash broke, but paper heavy in that scenario, you know, so just watching that grow the net worth thing where it's interesting to me now having these conversations about cash. Um, you know, having cash on hand, cash flow, we buy the cash flow on these properties. And it's very interesting to, to look at some of these scenarios on. How much is this going to put out? How much should I leverage? How much should I leave in the deal, right? What are these returns? So lots of opportunity out there, lots of stuff going on. But I also want to talk with you, Amir, on this thing. So before we started, you said that you have these, uh, we, we know you have this experience now. And you were telling me something about some access to some resources that you're going to give away to the listeners. Right, right. So a couple of
1: things that might be interesting is I have condensed a five-year pro forma on a single rental to a single page excel file and it's just i think it's good to start really simple with the numbers and all the excel files you change one number the whole thing changes it shows like your five-year annualized return your overall return you can change the leverage you can change interest rates in the bank it's just one page and it's good if you're kind of easing into this to just get that overview And then, you know, they have you, if they want to get into the more finer details, they could jump on a call with you or use your turnkey system. So I think that's a good way to jumpstart them. And it might, some people are a little bit afraid of getting in because I think it's too complicated. Well, let's start off with something really simple. And another thing, a lot of reasons people get into real estate is because the tax deduction. So I'm going to have my little checklist of tax deductions that a lot of doctors should be looking at. And some of them are not. And even older doctors are not. For example, just last week, I was on the phone with one of my primary care buddies in South Texas. And, uh, uh you know, I'm not going to name any names or even name the city but that he lives in. But he was making payments to the IRS for back taxes. He owed so much tax. He didn't know he was going to pay that much taxes last year. So I'm like, bro, just... It's okay to show send me your personal financial statements. He had bought two pieces of property, he bought like a second home, and then bought an investment property. I'm like, bro, you didn't even depreciate any of this. Like, if you do this, this, and this, classify it like this and this, use my CPA. I'll, I'll give him a heads up. You're coming. You're probably going to get about hundred fifty thousand dollars back, but you're going to have to amend your twenty-one and twenty-two taxes. But it's worth it to get hundred fifty k back. And he was on a payment plan for about 47 K. So that's a pretty good deal. Right. But right. Tax advantages. Some of them seem so simple, but if you miss them, you miss them. Right. And it's such a pain to do an amendment down the road. So might as well just get it all done now and don't miss the big one. So I'm going to send that to you guys as well. If you want to just go to com, which is where is it over here somewhere?
0: Yeah. It's up on the board. Yep. So for the listeners, it's, uh, B A L U chcapital dot com and forward slash real estate mogul md that's awesome awesome so balouchecapital.com capital dot com forward slash real estate mogul md and we've got this uh, the one pager showing five five years of returns for a single family which is very very interesting to look at so love it's I have this conversation so often Amir is uh, people trying to basically compare apples to apples. And for me living in these numbers for so long, and it's like, Oh, well, what year of the property are you talking about? Right. Cause things are going to change along the way, but just trying to keep it simple is the hardest thing. And we've all heard Einstein talk about it. If you can't simply explain something, then you simply don't know it. Right. So understanding the simplest versions or, or, um, I guess perspective of this is, is key. And then these tax advantages are massive. Uh, you know, you and I are not CPAs. You do have the MD at the end of your name, but it's not tax doctor, right? So just a little disclosure out there, but we can all talk about what we've done personally and how we've benefited from it. And really for us, where we're recording this, it is the end of Q3, uh, in 2023. And now is that time where if, if, if you're listening to this and you're like, I don't even know what I'm going to be doing in taxes, you better be getting on it right now. Because if you don't know, you're going to be too late. Reactive versus proactive. You got it. So jump on that. Check that site out. Um, I love our conversation. I know you are super, super busy. Man, Amir, I I'd appreciate your time so much. Yep. I'm
1: glad to share some knowledge
0: and, and talk to everybody on here today. If anybody's got any questions, they could reach out. That's awesome. Thank you so much, man. And to the listeners, thank you for your time and your attention today, because without your attention, your time is not that valuable. So we appreciate you hanging out, giving us a listen. Uh, drop on by that website and, and check out Amir's stuff. Again, the experience that this man has, it's, it's just amazing. Absolutely amazing. It's balouchecapital.com forward slash real estate mogul MD. Uh, and man, you know where you got us and you know where you can come back and see us again. We appreciate it. If you have any questions for us, please send me an email, info at com, And I'll, I'm excited to see you on the next show. Thanks.